All right, welcome to Jed Banger's Ball. I'm your host, Jed Mayhew. Today's episode features my good buddy, Sean Hoffman. We're talking about scoring, TV, film, video games, uh, making music for those things, uh, licensing them to them. Basically, being your own sort of uh, music generator and coming up with ideas and songs that are then used for all sorts of TV shows that you see and video games and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I hope everybody had a good 4th of July weekend. Hope everybody was safe. I know here in LA, it's crazy. It's like a war zone out there. So I- I'm sure it was fun. But uh, yeah, let's get into uh, my discussion here with Sean Hoffman. We actually did this one at his studio. So it's a little bit different than what uh, we normally hear. But uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. We just turned off the air conditioner so that we could uh, hear ourselves talk here. Now we are recording. Okay, cool. So, Sean, explain explain where we are uh, today because it's a little bit different than normally when I do the show. We're in a one-car garage in Echo Park. I think it was built in 1927. It's your house, though. It is my house, and it is a one-car garage. It was a tool shed when I got the place. I found a dead possum in here. We found a dead raccoon when we moved in. It's, I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad it sign. It is. It's a great sign. It's a good sign? Okay. Uh, but but you, you built this place, though. You're, this, this is your studio, we should say. Yes, my dad and I built this. And uh, it actually was a... If you look around, you see all the mistakes of learning how to do carpentry as you go. But we built this whole thing, and uh, man, I've gotten a lot of use out of it. And I really love it. It's really small. You've been here before, and you know, like... Everybody's bumping into each other, but you know that's the way it goes in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean it's it's not uh, you wouldn't put like a full band in here. I have. It was really uncomfortable. <laughs> I have, but you know I do what I can. Sometimes I've I've actually done it in my living room too. It's just a pain in the butt breaking down all the gear that you see and and moving it. But we're lucky to have any space in in the city. It's just tough, you know. It's so yeah, valuable. So, I mean, what what made you think, like, what made you decide to to build a studio in the house or whatever? Well, I uh, when I first moved to town, uh, uh, to Los Angeles in the late 90s, uh, the scene wasn't incredibly uh, active at that point. So I, I was more drawn to working in television with uh, music. So the first thing I learned is that you needed to get a rig together. And when I was at school... I saw the earliest versions of digital home recording rigs, and I started building one. And I have some pieces from the beginning of when I started, but that's how it all started. So I knew that I always needed a space to be able to keep some music stuff. And I used to rent office space around uh, Los Angeles when it was inexpensive. And uh, luckily, one day I was able to buy a house, and I was able to build this out, and now I have my own space. So. I'm trying to remember how you and I met. Was it in CB Brand? We were playing in, in a country band together. Needed a last-minute fill-in. and That was uh, you. Yeah, and I learned the set uh, the night before, and I came and practiced with you guys, which is typical <laughs> of CB brand. <laughs> and you were, uh, you were better than everybody else in the band who had been playing the songs for years? <laughs> I don't know about all that, but it was, uh, it was one of those gigs that I'm glad I did because I would never have met a, like, all these, this great group of guys. And it was through Adam. Adam was the one that had suggested. I, I think a guitar player couldn't make it. It was probably Dave Bain or somebody couldn't make it. Right. So. Our friend Adam Wade, who yeah. uh, I think we've mentioned him on the show before. He played in uh, Jawbox and uh, Shudder to Think. And, and that Chris Novacelic band with the girl singer. You remember that one? Chris Novacelic, is that it? 
Is that Novoselic? Novoselic? Oh, right, right, right. How oh, do you he, say his name from Nirvana bass player? Well, they always spelled dude. it wrong on all the Nirvana albums, too. They thought that was hilarious to spell their names wrong. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know what his real name is, but he had that band with the uh, girl singer. You remember that? Sweet 75? Yeah, I believe that was it. Was that what it was called? He was in it. Adam was in that band. I don't, uh, I don't know if I ever heard that band. I remember hearing about them or whatever it was a departure from nirvana shall we say so i heard that wasn't that hot <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i listened to a recording because adam had posted a, a thing and, a, and it was very different did he record with them i believe he did it was uh it was very different because she was kind of like she was kind of like a, a street folk singer you know what i mean kind of like folk punk or something you know it was sounds awesome yeah <laughs> Let's get Adam on the show to explain. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about his band yeah. that he was in. I don't know if he had a, a ton invested in it, but he was in it. So, Well, you know, he's got quite the resume, though. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, you and I met playing in a country band, Chad, yep. our friend Chad's band, basically, yes. we should say. Um, I played a bunch of shows then, but then... But then I we started we started like making some music over here at this place that was for I mean also I should say you you do the we recorded the the theme song for the for the podcast here we did the theme song here which you you know you were the Brian Wilson of the project you came over and you just you just guy. told us you know, <laughs> we made your dreams come alive uh, we actually you forgot also really the first big thing we did together was uh, supermarket supergroup. Oh yeah, our children's record. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I forgot all about that. We did a whole children's album together too, based on food and recipes. We did a lot more than we ever imagined, from like funny voices to it was it was really a lot of kind fun of times in this garage. A lot of <laughs> man, fuck! I totally forgot about that. That's fucking. And uh, crazy. hopefully, we'll get to do uh, to do one of your experimental zigzags records here. Well, that's the plan. We'll see what happens with that. Caleb keeps sending me, uh, and and I keep sending him just like really whacked out shit with like lots of chorus and delay on it and then like they have titles like chrissy's theme and entering the station and they're like you know just our ideas for like movie soundtrack sort of you know songs that you would hear scores yeah our, sc yeah. our, our ideas for like scores that are for films that don't even exist yet that's what i'm here for <laughs> <laughs> so so anyways okay so let's get back so what what were you doing like before all this though? You were playing in a band. You were playing in a pretty well known band. Well, see, I'll tell us as fast as possible. When I sure. first got to town, I was working in commercial music, which I'm glad I did because it's always allowed me to live. Uh, somewhere in the early 2000s, a uh, girl I knew was dating the singer from a band called Bedroom Walls, and they were doing really well around town. And they need they needed a bass player. I filled in on bass, and when the bass player came back, I think she was doing merchandise or something for Beck, and uh, when she came back and was able to play, they said, why don't you switch over to guitar, which is normally what I play. So uh, I was in that band, and through them, that band kind of took off. It was around the same time, like, the shins and stuff were taken off, and we were often mentioned with the shins. But I met everybody through that band. It was really a, it was a good thing. It seems like every time that I say yes to something, it always opens up so many things for me. So I try to say yes more often now. But That explains you coming to play with Stevie Yes, yeah, And, you know, I really <laughs> didn't want to do it. I had this horrible feeling no, in my stomach. <laughs> I had this horrible feeling in my stomach of learning 15 songs. You know, it's like, oh, God, it's going to be awful. But uh, it ended up being really fun. Met another great group of guys. But 
through uh, Bedroom Walls, I got into American Music Club, which, you know, it's it's a typical, if you know anything about American Music Club or Mark Heitzel, all the stories that you hear about all that all happened to me, so. <laughs> right. And I don't know too much about it, but and for people that don't know, I mean, uh, what I did hear when I was working, you know, more in the music business or working at Sub Pop or whatever, uh, was that Mark Eitzel's, you know, he's known as this, he's an eccentric yeah, character, he's a, it's you his, know? Well, it's his, it's his trip, and, sure. uh, and he's, uh, you know, he's a personality. Right. <laughs> But it was it was fun, and I met a lot of people through that. But when I got back, it uh, and basically I was kicked out of the band because of you know a feud, shall we say? But um, when I got back, I realized that I needed to I needed to concentrate on doing uh, some stuff that I was highly invested in. Now I was an equal member of that band, but really someone else was sailing the ship, and there wasn't really that much say. Everything was split fair, so I I have nothing but positive things to say from a business side. But I needed to do stuff that I was invested in artistically and not just someone else's trip. But so. like what are your your influences musically? I mean, these you're talking about bands that are kind of uh I guess indie rock or whatever, but I know you're like a metal dude too, and like you grew up in Texas, right? Like Yeah, uh Virginia and Texas. Basically I'm from Texas, but I'm a military kid, so I ended up back in Texas when my dad retired and that was for my senior year. And yes, I was I was in the metal, and metal also led to like just liking any sort of heavy guitar playing. So I found myself listening to all kinds of bizarre and bad bands just to hear a cool guitar solo. I don't know if you ever went through that phase, but it all started off with sort of the guitar player magazine. Yeah, sort of phase, where, yeah, and you'd listen to any junk just to hear a cool guitar solo. You know, it's like uh, I, I. Paul Gilbert comes to mind. Yeah, and the guy, that, so. you know, he's actually a pretty funny guy. No, he's, he's a super funny player. guy. I looked him up on YouTube, and like the bands has... are a little hard to stomach. Racer X is a little; it's a rough listen. You yeah, know? it's tough to get into the. There's the songwriting is not uh, the most. You know, you can't really like sing along to it in your car. No, well, you could, but it would sound like you know, like after school special music or something. But the uh, you just waited for the guitar solo. But it all started probably like it did with you, um, the, the mixtapes of the eighties, where uh, where people would send around. I used to be in this little uh, like punk rock trading group where we would all send a cassette, and you had to make a cassette and you send it to the next guy. And it came with the usual suspects on there, Cro-Mags, Exploited, mixed with lighter stuff like B-52s and Violent Femmes, typical kid stuff. You know? right, and it sure. was rad. It was great. It was a yeah. great time. But that led into metal, and that's where you and I have, uh, where we share some uh, some likes. It was uh, Metallica's Ride the Lightning. I actually heard that before Kill 'Em All, and Ride the Lightning was like face-melting how great it was. Yeah, so. I think I heard Master of Puppets first. That was because I got it in the... Uh... In one of those uh, Columbia House, uh, you get like uh, yeah, I know, eight, I remember those <laughs> eight cassettes for a penny, and I got uh, Master of Puppets, So Far So Good, So What by Met- uh, Megadeth, Megadeth, yeah, uh, a Testament record, yeah, that would probably be either New Order or Practice What You Preach one. What was that one called? Was it called remember. Practice What You Preach? I can't remember yeah. what the Testament record was. I wasn't that thrilled by it at the time. They were kind of cool though. If you go back and listen, they're cool now. I like I dig it now, but at the time I it didn't blow me away as much as those other ones did. And like Slayer, Megadeth, and then it was like Anthrax, like uh, State of Euphoria or whatever, and. Uh, uh, what was the one where they cover... Uh, Anthrax had that... Okay, they had Fistful of Metal. Which, Fistful of Metal. Which was one where he kind of sang on that one. Yeah. It was kind of like Pantera's Cowboys from Hell or whatever. Oh, when, like they, when they would sing. Like the falsetto. Yeah, and then it went into more like yelling. 
Right. Uh, let's see. Among the Living. Among the Living is, I think that's the one. Well, the one I had had the, uh, we're going to just talk about anthrax for now. Right now. <laughs> the one that I had <laughs> that I remember uh, re- being really into was I brought uh, I'm the Man by Anthrax to yeah, show and tell. Public Enemy. With, well, and uh, yeah. and also um, it had, they did a cover of uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Yeah, that was a good version too. Yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. and that was, that was the first time that I ever heard. Black Sabbath, I think, yeah, I know, I think, was on that Anthrax cassette, because I thought of when I thought of when I thought of Black Sabbath back then. This is I'm talking about. I was like eight years old in third grade here. When I thought of Black Sabbath back then, I thought it was like, you know, Jimi Hendrix or Creedence. Like I thought it was like old man classic rock. Or it was. Um, I heard, of course, I heard Iron Man first, but right. uh, but. I didn't realize the Sabbath was that heavy because Iron Man didn't seem that heavy to me. But you know, it's all it's all relative. Back in the day, it was incredibly heavy. But I'd already heard Slayer and stuff. So exactly, it, seemed, it did seem like old man music. It's like when I finally heard Led Zeppelin, I was like, "This sounds like hippie stuff." I yeah. think we had this same conversation like two weeks ago, <laughs> drunk in a kitchen uh, with Rick Rodney of the band Strife, <laughs> the photographer. Yeah, where we were just like, I heard. Misfits before Van Halen, so fuck Van Halen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Those I, we could have those conversations all day long. But so, but that's what you were listening to originally was like that kind of music before you kind of got into. Well, you know, sixth grade was a big was the big changing period for me. That's where I started like searching out my own music. Before that, it was kind of you know I was a regular kid, just whatever was on the radio or your parents brought around. Sixth grade, I made the stand. It's also when I started skateboarding, so you had this influence of other kids. And they also opened up your world. You weren't going to hear this stuff. On this the is radio. in San Antonio. No, actually, this is in Germany. Oh, okay. Military, Frankfurt uh, Air Base. And there was, it was a bunch of great kids. It was skaters and metalheads. And, uh, so, did, how are you guys, how are you finding this music? Just through cassettes or? I had a friend that was a traitor. Uh, Chris Nolan was his name. I think he's a super Christian now. And, anyways, I think, he's, uh, I think he directed Batman. <laughs> he did. He did Batman. <laughs> he, uh, he his dad was a record trader. He used to like get all these like uh, uh, Frank Zappa bootlegs and stuff, and he taught his kid that. And his and he had every metal record. And he had no filter. He would have everything from like Keel, which was like Ronnie Keel. I think he played for. Uh, I think he played bass or something for uh, uh, Alice Cooper. He had have <laughs> he'd have like everything from like Keel to like L.A. Guns to Slayer to uh, Celtic Frost to Agnostic Front. He was just oh, a complete wow. lover yeah. of heavy stuff. Sure. So he'd bring it around, and we would we would you know check it out. And if I liked it, I didn't like high screaming back then. I liked yelling more than I liked the high screaming. But I've come to like the high screaming now. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you know, King you Diamond have that stuff, you know. Yeah, you yeah, you have that. I didn't like that high screaming shit either at the time, and now I like I love like Merciful Fate, King Diamond, and stuff. But but every but everybody needs that kid, you know. Or like for a lot of people, it's like an older brother, you know. Yeah. For me, it was like I grew up with all these like kids from Thailand. Like their fa- their parents were from Thailand or from Laos or whatever, or Laos or whatever, and their older brothers were like huge metalheads and they were like Thai kids with like really long hair and then like you know custom like jeans with like like Eddie like Iron Maiden image on the jeans and then like the shark 
the shark gill like cut out a oh, yeah, slayer yeah. shirt you know like you always wanted to be top. accepted by those guys because they looked like they just looked so cool you know that it was like it was hard to get the introduction well you southeast know, asia is like is like a, metal's huge there and in music in general but like they, they tend to go for like heavier stuff there's a guy on our base his name is Eric Bonenstiel, he was John Bonenstiel's older brother, and he went on to be a metal critic. I see his name pop up every once in a while, but he was the guy that had the Slayer jacket back in nineteen, you know, eighty five or eighty six, right. somewhere around there. Bonenstiel, yeah, Bon. That's if you look it up, yeah, metal name, yeah. And he was the guy that, like, you always looked up to. You just you wanted, you know, like, he was a man of few words, you know, when you try to ask him about anything, but. Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, for me, like, metal, like this, we're we're talking a lot about metal now. We went we went out of your uh, talking about you and talking about metal, but for me, like, it was like it was like what I first what I first got into, and then I sort of just like got rid of it because I was like got into punk rock, and I was like, you can't listen to metal and like punk, you it's, know. Yeah, and, then it's... It, and then it kind of went back full circle and then when i and realized like you can just listen to whatever the fuck you want you know it seemed like, like an evolution right at first you would listen to nothing but that because everything else just seems so lame but as you got older and you know you're you start to broaden your horizons i got into all kinds of stuff but i always i always look back as like look back at skateboarding and metal as a great foundation for uh, starting life you know so many creative <laughs> people and you know what? As you know, I've talked about we just kind of returned to it. It's like it was great, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's not the only thing you should listen to. No. But but so so when did you start? Did you pick up guitar around this time when you were listening to this stuff? Yeah, my parents were real funny about guitar. Uh, when I was over in Germany, everything was expensive and hard to get. So when I was over there, it's like nope, nope, nope. You know, I was asking for a guitar the whole time. When I got back to the states, I was in the suburbs of DC. My dad was at uh, was at the Pentagon, and the suburbs of DC are kind of like Marin County and up in uh, San Francisco. What area. was your dad doing? Uh, he was Air Force's consultant to Congress. That was his first job that I remember offhand. But Pentagon is just you deal with Washington a lot. You're up in the kind of you know you're barking the orders for the rest of the rest of the. Uh, Air Force. But anyways, uh, they had uh, – there's a lot of money up there, so the school districts are really nice, the public school districts. And the public school the I white went ones to – The are. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like on the Virginia side where we lived, it's like it's just endless you know, suburbs and basketball goals and what have you. But anyways, um, they had a guitar ensemble program there. So I joined up in the school, gave you a Takamini uh, acoustic guitar. And they would sign you one. You could check it out. It was great. And I brought it home, and my dad saw me and starting to play that guitar. And then slowly but surely, I earned my first Charvel. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, a- you just, when I came in here today, you had a new Charvel Jackson fucking shred machine that you had showed me that you were going to go buy on Craigslist the other day, and you and you got it. The story of, of that Charvel is, is an amazing one. That's The new one? The new one. Cause I, I think I told you a little bit about, it, but I had to go, I had to go all the way out to Palmdale to get it. I got it from a strange Frenchman out in Palmdale, and if anyone knows where Palmdale is, it's like in the high desert, on the edge of the high desert, I should say. And this dude, when I went in, he had like a samurai sword collection. 
Uh, he looked like a kickboxer. It was, you know, we were out in the middle of nowhere. So <laughs> He's like was, a QVC. Yeah, uh, it was fairly target ter- demographic. It was terrifying. Corner. It was actually a little terrifying in the in the house. But when he got comfortable with me, he showed me around, and he had just tons of shred guitars and like amps. And- I've seen him on Craigslist. He's got a couple of those like M1 Bengal Tiger. Uh, George Lynch model. Yeah, they, I guess he he sells just tons and tons of stuff, and uh, he's actually a really nice guy. There's really no reason to be afraid. You just get a little nervous when you see samurai swords and stripper shoes, and you know, and like you just and I there's no stripper. Yeah, yeah. just it got a little uncomfortable. There's just a, sam- a bloody samurai sword next to the stripper <laughs> shoes. Yeah, uh, Sean, let me show you my guitar collection. Okay, great. but I don't, I don't. He has tons of these things in various states. And well, what I was the, the first Charvel that you got? It was uh, like this kind of like, I always described it as like bowling ball blue. You know, you get a bowling ball, it's all sparkly. Oh, yeah. Deep blue was gorgeous and had two humbuckers. It was a little different than this one. This is a single humbucker model, but it was two humbuckers and it was great. It was like a dream, but my dad didn't get me an amp. So I had to play through this reel to reel in order to get like a distortion. So I would drive the inputs on it and it would distort. And that was my first amp. It was like, sounds like something out of the 20s or something. But my dad was in this kind of like, you need to earn it, boy. And guitars are a lot more expensive. It's not like nowadays where they're mass produced and you can buy a Chinese guitar for 100 bucks. Basically back then, even the worst guitar like a Lotus or something like that was a couple hundred bucks. And a couple hundred bucks in the late 80s was, you know, that was a good amount of money. Yeah. So. Totally. Did you were you taking were you taking lessons or were you just like teaching yourself how to play or Um I took there was a there were some kids and we were around, there was a lot of guitar players where I was where I was living and uh, the older kids would kind of like teach you stuff sure so that's that's how we learned and then eventually um, after high school I did go to I did go to music school for uh, three semesters up in Berkeley and Boston that's when I was playing jazz so. what uh, were you playing in any bands early on like did you have like any punk bands or anything like that or? Uh, no you know I did but it was junk you know I, I can't say that I was on to anything like some people had really cool bands early on um, I had really fun bands with friends but you know if you went back and listened to the material it would sound so misguided you guys weren't just... playing like all ages shows in DC or no like no no um, it's funny because Adam was around during that time playing sure. those shows and when I moved to Texas um, I had a band that I played around with, but we were, if God, we were so strange when I listened back cause we were totally isolated. We had no, there was no scene. It wasn't until I moved to Austin before I moved to Boston is where I started like getting involved and, and there was a nice scene in Austin. And then when I went to Boston, uh, I was full into jazz. So, uh, I really didn't start my music life until I got to LA before that I was really just a guy learning and, and just, you know, trying to get to the city where I wanted to start. That's crazy. But that explains, I mean, it kind of explains how you ended up where you are today because you weren't like from the get go trying to like start bands and like do this stuff, but you kind of, you knew how to play uh, or you learned to play. And so eventually people that need, someone who can actually fucking play on their records or, or join the band and learn stuff, you know, they, they call on a, a, basically like a session guy or like a hired gun, which is kind of like what you've kind of become. Yeah, that's... In all truthfulness, I was originally wanting to be like a, a Bill Frizzell kind of guy. I wanted to be a jazz guy and playing combos. And well, I, I was accidentally lured out to Los Angeles. My original intention was to go to New York. 
but um, when I came out here, there's just no scene for jazz at that time. It's it's kind of changed recently, but that's what forced me into uh, becoming more of a session guy for TV and a composer. Really, um, I just com- I compose. I have like you know like I have like a thousand songs out there doing stuff in TV land. And uh, that just came out of uh, situ- it was situational, and then I had that awakening in my uh, mid twenties when I was invited into a band that I was like, oh wait, being in a band's really fun, and I was kind of invited into a scene where it made starting bands a lot easier because you knew people. Sure. And uh, I kind of fell back into it. Now I'm very serious about playing with people and, and making art. But back then, I really, I honestly, for the first uh, four or five years I was here, I really could care less about being in advance. Weird looking back at that, but I was just, I was happy to get stuff on television. That was my, and, and you know, television music is really not that great. I don't know what I was doing, but I. Well, I went through that same thing in the sense of like after working at a record label for six or seven how many years, which at the time felt like a really long time, and now looking back on it is not that long that long of a time. But when you start when you're 18 and you end when you're 25 or whatever I was, it seems like a really long time. And I, you know, I had to take like five years off of like not playing in any bands after that because all I did was play in bands and work at a record label. So it's like I would go to work and do music for eight hours at work and then go to band practice after. And it's just more music and more, you know, and then go to a show afterwards. And, you know, after a while, it's just like you you, you drive yourself nuts just being around the same fucking thing constantly. It's cool, though, that you got to kind of see how the business works. And especially from, obviously, we're talking about Sub Pop, and it's from a more artistic side, you know, a a label that deals more in in a boutique music. So it's cool that you got to see into that because so many people are, that's a great mystery to them. Sure. And it's, you know, it's funny when you hear, like, their ideas of how they're going to make it, and you're like, man, that's just not how it works. Well, that's kind of the point of this whole fucking show and this whole podcast is, like, let's talk about like what actually not that i've fucking made anything but like let's talk about what works as far as like if you do want to get into you know uh music licensing or film or tv or whatever like and it always comes down to uh the same thing in any other job which is just you just have to fucking work your ass off and you have to like say yes to opportunities like you do and yeah you get you, to know people by saying yes if you say no if you isolate yourself then you're fucked you know i would say that 75 to 80 percent maybe even more is social it's whether or not uh people like you it's social and yeah exactly it's social in 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 and up to a point where it's like yeah if you know people but like can you actually do the fucking job and well, can you like get along with people which you know that's not my strong that's, point but. yeah that's the rest <laughs> that's the rest of the other <laughs> unless 20%. i like you, you know, i like, find you if i don't like you with. i fucking i'll never get along with i mean you, it's always whenever you're dealing with bands and you're dealing with people trying to get bands out there you're dealing with type a personalities for the most part so you're you're gonna have to learn how to uh how to deal with that right but but if well if you have like well and i think you I don't know if you have a type A person. I don't even know what that person I, is. Well, you know, I don't want to use this generic term. You're pretty like... I, I get, I, I'm pretty easy to get along yeah, with you're until you different. push to a point. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'll deal with so much, but it, I have this kind of like crime fighter thing that if I see injustice, I'm just not going to deal with it. And that was basically my downfall in, in some of the bands I've been in. Right. I don't like to be messed with, so sure. Well, nobody does, but uh, it, well, and, and I and I generally like to mess with people, so <laughs> it's hard for me to, but I can't be on the, I can't be messed with either. Uh, so, so getting back into here, so then you start, you start that you build this studio at your house, and 
how do you get like your first job as like doing music or film for TV? Well, I have been working all along, but see, I when I first got to town, I I met through some friends, uh, some guys doing library music, and this was in the beginning of library music, or I shouldn't say What's the beginning. Library music? Well, library music is where they can just pull cues from um, like uh, uh, CDs for background music for uh, regular television shows. And so, it's public domain and anyone can use it? Is that no, it it's not public domain. Okay. It uh, You have to uh, you have to fill out cue sheets and, and you also have to pay licensing fees. But this is like, instead of having a composer for a TV show, let's, let's say something like back then it would be shows like Current Affair, these little kind of news shows. They needed little bumpers and cues. Gotcha. And they would, instead of having a composer, they would just pull from libraries of music that's like, oh, we need a cue that sounds like rock and roll. Oh, we need a cue that sounds like hip hop. That's how it all started out. And I worked for guys um, that were doing that through, uh, it was uh, Sony BMG's library called Killer Tracks. I think it's since changed hands several times. But that's where I kind of got my start in the business and started to learn about the business. And uh, I would just make cues for them. Basically, I would purge all my bad ideas. You know, if I came up with some stupid riff, I'd be like, that'll be perfect. Go in there and we'll knock it out. You <laughs> know. So it was just making uh, like Van Halen sounding rock songs all the way to like whatever was popular at the time. It was really a great way to practice being a session player. It was that part of it was fun. And you were doing this here out of their studio or? No, I first had a space. I, I first lived in my studio in a house where basically I just had a bed in the middle of my studio. And then as I as uh, as I got more money, I rented spaces, and I've had spaces all the way from Chatsworth to downtown Hollywood. I had one in Crossroads of the World, if you know where that is. Sure. I had a studio there. That's where the uh, Tashin offices were yeah. there for a while. I had a studio there. I, I've had them everywhere. There there used to be in L.A. before before the great like migration here, there was office space for days. And if you could pay 300 to 600 bucks you had an office space in this town right so. so you would have a weird space like crossroads of the world would be available to someone it was awesome yeah and those were places where they did like you know like john holmes films and stuff you know it was really a <laughs> really w- really weird place don't uh don't sit on the furniture <laughs> yeah. if you're if you're in the in the office there my buddy uh i ran to my buddy yesterday who just uh moved into uh, one of those studio spaces that used to be the the Beastie Boys, yeah, Grand over in, Royal in Atwater, exactly. Like, yeah, I've been to that one. It's cool. I was in TG one night, wasted, and uh, these two guys were in there, and they were like, "Hey, we're we have a studio space." They knew a friend. It wasn't just like these two guys were picking me up, but they were like telling. <laughs> they knew a friend of mine, so they were like, "Come into the, come check out the uh, studio space upstairs," and. Uh, I'll let you know. I'm adjusting the mic here. If it, if it sounds weird, I'm, I'm adjusting the mic. Sean's helping me adjust the mic um, because we are doing it in Sean's studio and not the normal place. Um, but uh, we went upstairs there and I was, and I like laid down some guitar on some like weird hip hop track that they were working on. <laughs> it, I don't even remember. Did it still have the stage? I remember it had like a stage in there and it, it had like it, a half pipe in there. Well, think, things have changed. <laughs> Not anymore, but yeah. But my buddy John, he just moved in there yesterday. I saw him, and he's like, he's like renting out one of the studio spots in there. Yeah, and there's I've I've met people that had some really uh, cool studios from situations like that where you just knew the right person and they gave you a decent price, and next thing you know, you had a pretty awesome studio. And it's crazy because they're they're basically writing music for like pop stars. Basically, they're submitting. Music to people like 
I don't know if it's like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, but like something like that. They're writing that kind of music in the studio to submit. My uh, my wife and I played a, a showcase. We have a band called Lock and Key, and we uh, we did a BMI showcase a while back. And I met some uh, some girls from Nashville that were doing kind of a kind of a country duo. But anyways, they become Nashville writers, and I you know we keep up through the Facebooks. And uh, I saw that they got their their big song. They got it to one of those big uh, Nashville artist and it got him a uh, publishing deal. And it's like, wow, it still happens, you know? Yeah. So. It's crazy. Cause it's just like when I, when I'm like at band practice or whatever, it's like, that's the furthest thing. Yeah. From I mean, my I, mind. I don't know how to even write for those, for those kind of, uh, artists because I imagine it's all catch. It seems like it's all catchphrase hook and sound design, which is, I, I don't work in that. So, you know, I have, I couldn't even tell you where to begin, other than I guess it exists, you know. So. Right. But let's break it down then, so because we're we got we have we it's easy to talk to you because I know you so well and we've been doing all this shit together. But like, I want to break it down for people. So someone comes to you with a video game idea, and it's like it. So for instance, like it's a it's a car racing game or whatever, and they say what we need all the music for the game or we need a certain piece of music for the title sequence or we need do we need the sa- the sounds of the fucking tires squealing or well you know for this uh, particular game i will be doing the sound design also but uh yes there's all kinds of little components and we also have to make sure that a lot of the music is modular and what i mean by that is that it can be cut and looped and it can be used as stabs like a hit like if you do a function in a game it can also just pop up and a little strike a little part of the song will pop up it's really quite complex. These guys are really, really smart. I'm by far the dumbest guy that's working with them. These these guys, these developers are all from MIT, and, sure. and and our company that distributes us is out of San Francisco. So I'm dealing with really smart guy, and their problems are big. My problems are sort of big. So I just I try to we talk about it. We I talk to them a lot because I don't want to waste anybody's time with making with stuff that making stuff that doesn't work. So what we usually come up with is an idea that's going to. Uh, uh, an idea for a direction of what's going to work in the game, what style we want. And uh, it's it's really fun. And you get the input of other people. That's, a, that's one of the things I, I have to listen to people. And back in the past, I used to always think that I knew everything that was right. But it's funny. When you listen to people, they actually have pretty good ideas. And, uh, you know, it's just we have a big meeting about it, and then we start making music, and, or I start making the music. And usually I get pointed in the right direction, and I don't have to redo many things. On occasion, I miss the mark, but... But to acquire these sort of jobs or gigs or whatever, this is all through word of mouth. This is this is you building on something that you started a long time ago by starting That's out correct. getting like a little job here and there, like doing the cues for the for the what did you call it? The library music. Library music yeah. And then meeting more people and constantly like kind of getting up to the point where someone will come directly like we need sean hoffman to make the fucking car song or whatever yeah that's one it's one (laughs) car song (laughs) the car song that's it's one of those cases where i never suggest anyone to do this very often but a long time ago the main developer guy who's a really great guy and also a great musician he hit me up kind of like hey i've got this i got this early company can you make me a song for this little video game i'm doing i will pay you when i get paid usually when i hear that it's a big no right but you know what? I did it. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And sure enough, he paid me like half a year later when he got when he got paid. 
and uh, some trust was built there. And ever since then, we've built this relationship. But it all started through uh, through socially through friends. I you know I hate to say it, it wasn't like I entered my stuff and it's like you, sir, you have the job. It's not like that. People just said, hey, my buddy Sean can do that stuff. That's sure. how it goes. Yeah, I mean, and that's like when someone comes to me and says, like, hey, do we, do, can you do a children's record? And I'm Precisely. like, sure. I'm like, yes, I can, because I know Sean Hoffman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if I didn't know you, I'd be like, hold on, let, hold me, on, let me find let me find out somebody that can do it with me, and I'll get back to you. But instead, I'm able to just say, yes, I can do that, because I know this guy. You know, I have no family connections in, in the biz or anything. So it goes to show that somebody that comes from that comes from an area like Air Force family has nothing to do with this business. You can find your way into it, but it's hard work, and you know you have to go to a lot of parties. And I still go to a lot of parties. It's funny, you know. It's like that's how you meet people. That's you know. I I got my last. Uh, I did a theme for uh, George Takai's uh, technology show, and it's all because I made friends with the guy at a party. So it's I can't imagine what kind of <laughs> it was at George Takai's party. No, it was uh, it was uh, uh, Clyler from David Clyler from Volcano Suns. He was oh. filming it. You know, it was it was just one of those things where he kind of gave me a shot. Like, oh, you do this stuff, all right. And the next thing you know, I delivered it. It worked, and now you have a new a new uh, client. Well, I think so. that I think that you know, if we've learned anything today, that's that it's you know, it, again, the point being is that all of these jobs or whatever are the same in the sense of you have to be good at what you're doing. You have to work hard at it. It's not easy. And then you also have to be open to opportunities that come along uh, and say yes to some things that maybe you don't necessarily want to do. Yes. What I, I feel I, like I'm now I'm doing this show for like high school kids because I've fucked up so many times. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like doing this show. I, for I, like, I love, I my mom is like a high school yeah. counselor. So now I feel like I'm turning into Bar Mayhew here. I'm doing this like public service for, to, to repent all of my sins <laughs> of my early twenties. Well, people often aren't very honest with how they got started. They like to make it sound cool, but really it, 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 it just is a big part social, but it's best to be to try to try your best to be better than everyone else because that helps too. So you really try to be you really try to be good because I've known some guys who were just connected dudes that would get a job and eventually they'd meet their match. They couldn't do it. You know, they may have been the coolest guy in the world, but they just got into a position where like like they didn't have the skills and the you know you do have to have skill. It's good to have both. But you you can't be the weirdo that just hides out in his room and expect to work. You got to go out and you got to go to parties, which you know isn't really asking that much. You just got to go out and press the flesh, and you know maybe know that the the first couple Iron Maiden records had a different singer. You know, yeah, just exactly. that stuff that's a little little party fodder. Sure, yeah. I was God. I was reading a fucking I don't know why I was well, I was reading Pitchfork this morning and. Uh, <laughs> This guy was talking about – there was an article written by this guy uh, uh, talking about going to the, the singer of LCD Sound System's new wine bar in Williamsburg. I, I saw that. He has a Macintosh uh, amplifier in there. Like He has like this total audiophile system. A friend of mine uh, was li- – that's her building that he built it in. So. Well, I believe that. I mean, <laughs> sure. The, the guy who wrote the article, though, talks about at one point uh, – 
uh, that uh, the dude from LCD Sound System, I can't remember the guy's name, James Murphy, that's his name, uh, goes over and cranks up the music or whatever in the restaurant, like as they're kind of closing down or whatever. And the guy's trying to Shazam it on his phone and he can't figure out what song it is. And Shazam, I don't know how Shazam can't figure it out, but he asks him and he's, and he's like, Zigzag Wanderer by Captain Beefheart is the song. <laughs> and as I'm reading, I'm spitting out my fucking coffee because I'm just like, how the fuck are you writing about music in New York City and you don't know that? Like, that song to me is like DJ'd every single fucking place that I go to. But I don't, maybe that's just because I always DJ it, but I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't mean, know where I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, I guess it. What was what were we talking about before then? <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's I, funny that I actually saw an article. I just about wanted to this, say that huh? about this particular uh, restaurant. Uh, I think we were just talking about knowing your shit. Oh, you know? that's like, what it was. Okay, so how do you? Yeah, exactly. I get where you got to know like, your basically, shit. Basically, this guy is writing for. Was it a guy or a girl? It was a guy. It was a guy. Yeah, he's writing for Pitchfork, which is a what ta- does it matter it, if it's, it's a, girl? a tastemaker, right? Yeah, what would it matter if it was a girl? It wouldn't matter. I'm just saying, just making sure, like, are we picking on a guy or a girl here? Got it. But uh, he's writing for this tastemaker uh, uh, publication or, or uh, online, whatever the yeah. hell it is. And uh, he doesn't know enough, you know, and you you would Why do you that, admit it in the article? That's I what I would I never admit yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Of course I knew that was Captain Beefheart. Yeah. I love his stuff. Only his early stuff. Sure. <laughs> but, I think he lived in Palmdale, actually, too. Well, I guess what you're saying is that you want someone with skills and someone that has a massive knowledge, kind of like being a music supervisor. You it's amazing that... when people are music supervisors and oh. they don't know shit, and you're like, how, how could you not crazy. know shit? That's your, that's your gig. You should be obsessed with this. Like, uh, I think that's the point, is that whatever you do, whether you're like, you know, making fucking you know, pastrami or you're making fucking beats for hip-hop or something, you, you, the people that are successful at it are the people that are obsessed with it. Whatever they're doing. Well, that's the guy that's or the guy or girl who's going to be the legendary person is the person that knows their stuff. So right. yes, you, you get your opportunity, but you also should always be trying to get better. And if I was working for Pitchfork, I would be obsessed with learning, you know, music from the past, even going beyond early punk rock. You know, you'd get back to like to weird jazz to whatever you would go you would just try to learn everything you can so that you're always you always know what you're talking about or know enough to not admit that you don't know what you're talking yeah about. and often i that's one thing that i had to do recently in the past like five or six years was to admit when i didn't know and just say i don't know please tell me about it you might right. as well learn instead right. of going around being like an asshole so, so that's good final question i have for you then getting back into the whole Basically, what we're talking about here is home recording in a sense, because you're you're basically recording music out of your out of your house or your you know your own studio that you built, as opposed to like renting out mm-hmm. the you know uh, a electric ladyland to go do your shit or whatever. So, for people that are trying to do home recording stuff, like what advice do you have as far as like what's like a piece of gear that somebody should have is there one piece of gear that you can kind of start out to do this sort of stuff or and then uh exp- expanding on that question what would you do once you do have a piece of music that you like that you think could be in a tv show or a film or a video game i think that's a, getting into a long question here but no, that's fine uh first uh the most important gear with digital recording which i imagine most people are going to be doing um 
is converters. And don't mess around with converters. Get fancy converters. You can get by with cheap mics and even a marginal mic preamp, but uh, converters are everything. And What's that, a converter? ADDA, audio to digital, digital to audio. It's um, it's a piece that 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 converts uh, analog sound into uh, into digital to go into the computer, and then it does the same. It also turns digital into an analog uh, signal out out of the computer. So you want that to be super strong, and that has to do. I'm not going to get too far into it, but it has to do with clocking, and that's clocking. A good clock and a nice converter is everything, and I'm serious. That is the most important part of digital recording. See, I did not know that. So that's basically uh, not to throw brands around, but I would at least get something like a Apogee to start with. I wouldn't do an Inbox, or even if they make those anymore. I wouldn't do any of the other ones. I would get something like an Apogee. It goes up from there. Buying an Apogee is like getting a, it's like getting a BMW or something. You're getting a nice. You're getting a nice car, but you know there's all the way up to Maseratis and Lamborghinis as far as converters go. But that's like you're competitive in the business if you get one of those converters. Gotcha. Uh, the second part of your question was, um, oh, what to do if you have a good piece of music? Right. This is I really forgot, tough. So I'm glad you remembered. Music supervisors are uh, they're like royalty here in Los Angeles, and they are super hard to contact through basic, uh, you know, like through email or anything. Forget about it. You're talking about like hundreds of thousands of people are writing these people. They do not answer it. I wish I had a good a good answer. Um, I don't. And I, it would either th- be through social channels or you'd make a clever YouTube video and put it up on YouTube. If the song's strong and starts building a bunch of likes, some of them will come looking for you. It's Sadly, that's the way it is, views and likes. If you don't know anybody, it's views and likes. If you do know somebody, they, you, know, you can just hand it to them if it works, but... It's hard to meet those supervisors. I hate to, to break it to folks, but it is. Well, and if you want to know more about it, you can listen to, uh, I think it's episode uh, nine? No, eight. I don't know. The, you look it up on Jed Banger's Ball. There's a, the one episode. where you had the, where you had the, the two girls on there. Didn't they get stoned or something? And, like, it got really funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, like, there's someone working in the business. Uh, I, you know, I, I didn't listen to that one. I need to check it out. I'd be curious to what she said. If, it, it's if, Tiffany Anders, who's a music supervisor. And, and, you know, she says the same thing that you say pretty much and in, in that we got that we kind of figure out on each one of these episodes is that you know it's it's not fucking easy so you know i think if you have an original band or and and you you have strong material the best way to advertise it uh, if you're not going out and playing the circuit is uh through youtube i you know some people have made careers out of just making really catchy youtube videos and good songs to go along with it and people have gotten quote unquote famous that way it's a great way to advertise it's also you know often you put something up there and it just goes into the goes out into the universe your options are either you get famous off of it uh no one sees it or it's a horribly embarrassing thing that you're then cyber bullied for the rest of your life (laughs) those are your three options yeah i mean if it's real earnest yeah you could be cyber bullied (laughs) (laughs) all right john thanks so much for being on the show thanks for having me cool All right, that was Sean Hoffman. Thanks for listening. Uh, As always, we're brought to you by This Is Not A Pipe and Green Street, although today we were not uh, recorded in our normal spot in uh, beautiful mid-Wilshire, Los Angeles, California, but we're coming at you from the rolling hills of Echo Park, as my friend Chad Brown used to say. Uh, Sean was nice enough to uh, record his own interview. 
We'll put a, a link up on the site for you to check out more of his stuff. Uh, but as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. This is Jed Banger's Ball, signing off. Thank you.